to welcome to this week's episode of the Parking People podcast, uh, the home for global leaders and to share technology insights. And my name is Guy Bevington. I'm the MD of True North Recruitment Group. Um, and this week, I'm delighted to be joined by um, Berab Patel, um, CTO of Atom Ventures. Berab, a warm welcome. How are you doing today? Many thanks, many thanks. I am a little bit cold, but I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, it's bitter. I went for a run earlier on. It was uh, took me about 20 minutes to warm up, but... Uh, that's British weather for you, isn't it, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, Berev, I guess to frame um, today's episode, so when we, we got chatting uh, a while back now, um, it became really apparent, I think, quite quickly that you're somebody who has um, not only established and built um, technology functions from scratch multiple times throughout your career, but you've actually uh, managed to achieve that in multiple countries and multiple locations globally. And... Uh, I guess the world that we're all living in now that we've all been thrust into as a result of the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is you know, that concept of the location of workforce, um, you know, on-site versus remote and uh, onshore versus you know, near shore versus offshore, et cetera. It's become a lot more front and center for a lot of companies' strategy moving forward. So we thought there could definitely be a lot of value um, to share around your experiences um, insofar as, you know, what, international strategies have worked well for you and uh you know versus in retrospect what you you, you may potentially have done different um if you if you had your time again so um yeah we thought let's have a little chat about it and and see what insights come out of it i guess um Ooh. so before we delve into uh, that and get to the nitty-gritty uh do you want to start by just telling us a bit about yourself and your uh, your sort of career bio uh to date sure so i started in 1999 so that's what 22 years ago so that's a fair amount of time i started off at pwc then ibm and with pwc i managed to travel around quite a bit so one of my very first projects or my very first project actually was in lithuania so i spent two years out in lithuania from was it 99 to 2001 ish um and from there i went to norway lived out in Norway for 11 years. I was CTO for a privately owned e-commerce business, the largest privately owned e-commerce business out there. We took that and um, it was an interesting interesting place to be because it had been running for a few years, was a startup and essentially grew really too quickly. So, And the guy who's in charge of the business, very, very intelligent guy, but was one of these people that um, you know really felt uh, like he felt his community and he really wanted to kind of, he felt a, felt a part of his community, but he also really wanted to kind of bring, give back to his community. And so when I got in there, it was one of those situations where he had three people doing one person's job. So we had to do kind of a radical uh, change there. But what was great about that was that we, um, we built the, the tech team up over the five years I was there and uh, we made that an international team. So that was great. And then from there, I ended up at a FinTech where it was a, actually someone I knew who had started a um, started a business, raised $12 million back in 2012 for a fintech. So this is before fintechs were, or the whole fintech craze really existed. And we took that into a global business, launched actually into 40 different countries on day one, uh, but then had operations in the US, uh, Ireland, Singapore, South Africa. Uh, so that built up over what, another four years or so. And then... Uh, there's an interesting story about how that ended and that's a whole story for startup founders and, and this, that and the other. But from there, I ended up going to Bangkok, building a team in, of um, for a friend's company. He was a rapidly scaling business. So he, he it was odd. He had about 4,000 people working in the business across all the different countries and only five in IT <laughs> and three of them were part-time. So it was all a bit, a bit <laughs> mad. So, so I ended up going in there to try and 
bolster that team and, and scale that. So we built that and then eventually started Atom Ventures. And, and with Atom Ventures, what we've been doing is helping startups and small businesses with their technology by providing virtual CTO services and development as well. So what we tend to do there is we go in early stage to a company that doesn't necessarily have a, a tech person within that company so anyone technical will go in help set the roadmap strategy uh, and then execute that so either we will build the technology ourselves or we use a a network of our partners to do that and as they grow we'll help them add more people into the team we'll manage that team until they get to that investment stage and a a few of the companies that we've worked with have raised significant series a that they've just gone on then to hire their own CTOs and then we help them hire those CTOs. So, so that's great. And we've been doing that now for the last three years. And, um, and that is international as well. So we've got clients all over the world for that. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a very impressive uh, CV there. Um, and yeah, I guess what's quite apparent already is, you know, there, is, there has been that really international theme, you know, sort of core thread, I guess, running throughout all of your, uh, your ventures. Um, so initially, was that, is that something that's always been intentional for you? Or did it sort of just happen by you know, um, osmosis of being in the right place at the right time and, and sort of uh, seeing the virtues of, of international versus uh, yeah, domestic um, functions. So I guess with when you're joining someone like PwC, it's very international to begin with, right? Especially because back in those days, you're working with teams and the way they would work. So on that Lithuanian telecoms project that we worked on, you had a big contingent from the UK, but you also had people coming in from PwC Poland, PwC Latvia. So you had people from all over uh, Europe coming into those projects and similarly when i was in norway and norway was a little bit different in that uh, mostly norwegians working for pwc out there but we did have i mean we were the brits uh, in norway working on those so i think from my very first projects we were always internationally the teams were always international um, they weren't it wasn't in the same way as you have now where you're having the nearshoring offshoring right that developed over time so when I when PwC got bought, so the PwC consulting piece got bought by IBM, that's when you know we got introduced to the whole outsourcing model in India. And I actually went out early days to early two thousands to Bangalore to help set up some of the teams for the project that we were working on in the UK. So I spent some time in training the teams out in India uh, for how they work. So I've been doing that outsourcing model for at least twenty years now. Right. So yeah, it, it it all came because of that background. And then when I went into the smaller companies well, I say smaller, but they were still um, fairly large for the, for the countries they're in. It, it, wasn't a, it, wasn't, it wasn't a situation that I, I knew I wanted to make them international, but the, the thing for me was that I'd seen how it worked. So I wasn't against it. And what I see now with some clients that we work with is that they're very against having not necessarily remote teams, but working even with different cultures. And, and I think I always take it for granted, having worked in different countries that, you know, you can do it but I forgot there are other people who've never ever really dealt with anyone from anywhere else. Uh, and so they, they think it's a, it's a huge hurdle when it really isn't. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, certainly from a lot of conversation, I mean, it sounds like you've been in environments where, I mean, clearly you've had to go and make it work and obviously been very in- instrumental in making it work, but it sounds like it has worked. And um, there's, there's a lot of uh, CEOs and MDs I speak to that, that, that sort of initial opening gambit, it, it does feel quite inherent and, um, fraught with risk with a lot of them they are quite adverse to doing it because I said I've never done it before and uh, so yeah I guess it's quite interesting to share your perspectives on that and uh, allay any of those potential um, you know sort of falsehoods or, or concerns so so I guess on that note I mean having um, successfully started established functions technology functions globally what strategies can you share you know that have that have worked for you um, essentially so we've really 
oh, well, I've always gone to those countries. So where, when you know you want to hire someone from abroad, you'll do a bit of research because it, now it's much more, it's much, a, it's a very different landscape today than it was 20 years ago, right? Essentially 20 years ago, you were looking at pretty much India as the main outsourcing hub and you weren't looking anywhere else. Whereas now I'm working with teams in South Africa, you know, you've got Vietnam, Vietnamese teams, Chinese teams, as well as all of the European teams that popped up around Poland and Spain and Portugal and, um, and um, places like Latvia, Lithuania as well. So one thing I realized is that in order for it to be successful is that you have to essentially spread out your culture to whichever team is, is working for you, no matter where they are in the world. And you really can't do that unless you go there and visit. Now, obviously COVID it's a bit harder to go and uh, see someone go out and, uh, and bring people or even bring people across, but you still need to build that cultural connection slightly because uh, working in somewhere like India is very different to working somewhere like Australia, New Zealand. So we had teams in, in New Zealand, right? And it's much easier to get on with someone from New Zealand because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, especially if you're British, it's, it, there's a lot of cultural similarities. Yeah. In India, there isn't. And, um, and I think you need to put yourself a little bit in the shoes there because you are hiring people at the end of the day. You're not just hiring a CV of, of talent and what they've done on previous projects. You have to understand a little bit about their motivations and, and, um, and why it is, that they want to work for you. And um, it, it, it's, I guess they you shouldn't really see it any differently than hiring someone in your own country, right? Cause you want to show your culture, show what you can offer, how, you know, how the experience will be, how you'll grow the talent. It should really be the same as when you're hiring a, a nearshoring or offshoring team. Now, of course you may look at it differently if it's a shorter term engagement, whether it's a three month project, four month project, but very rarely do you see three months projects that last only for three months right? They tend to go on and on and on. And then three months turns into you know, three years. So if you go in with the outset, I'm sorry, the, the mindset that the people that we're going to hire, we're going to need to, to deal with them over a longer term basis, then you, you act as if you're hiring them in, you know, to sit in your office. And I think that's the, that's the key. And, and what I, I did is if I couldn't physically go out there because, you know, I was busy being CTO, then I'd send some of my senior team. Uh, and we would always have initial calls with the people to understand, you know, a little bit more about the culture rather than just about the person. Because I think that's, that's the only way it really works. If you understand how people, how people work on a day to day basis. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess fingers crossed if we're on the way out of the woods with, uh, with the pandemic now, hopefully touch wood, um, that becomes a, a bit more easy to actually, you know, uh, sort of forecast getting, uh, people on, on ground in future. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I can imagine for companies for the last year trying to build out some kind of international presence and build that culture purely remotely, uh, purely digitally, it must be really difficult. Um, and um, yeah, what, what, kind of, what kind of cultural elements do you think need to be taken into account um, you know, based on your experiences when, when choosing to build a team in another country versus um, you know, locally? So again, it, it goes down to a lot of the, the motivations of people that are working for you. So, you know, as you mentioned, it, it is hard creating a remote culture, but if you are a business that was established pre-COVID, you already had a culture, right? Uh, and if you weren't able to keep that culture as a remote, as, you, as everyone was working remotely, then you're going to struggle doing that with people that you've never met before in a different country, right? But if you've managed to kind of keep that cohesive and maintain that culture as a company now during COVID, then there should be no reason why you aren't able to do that uh, for people in other countries. So there are, you know, there's it, it, a lot of it comes down to the really, really weird, like your day-to-day -day things. 
So for example, so we're hiring in India at the moment and we've trebled our size or doubled our size over, over COVID. And we've been hiring, we're setting up a company out there. We're hiring people out there. And, you know, I've been outsourcing in India for many years. So I've kind of always assumed that I knew the motivation, but then you know, I'm an old man now. And one thing I, I, in my, my mindset is still from 20 years ago, where actually the motivations of the youth of today is, is, is very different. And, you know, one of the things that you find is that let's say India, for example, some of the younger generation really aren't motivated so much by money, but they need other things. So it'll be training. It'll be uh, a great work-life balance. They don't want to be working on 15 different projects at once. Uh, and some of the senior guys will be more interested in their titles, right? So they'll want to know what title am I going to get? Um, they'll be obviously concerned about money, but a lot of them will be understanding, you know, after I have this title, have this amount of uh, additional pay rise onto my, onto my pay packet. And because there are so many jobs in the market, it's hot, it's easy for people to pop from one place to another. So you then got to think about what kind of people you're trying to attract. Is it just based on money? So we've actually started looking at, at women trying to get back into the workforce because there's a lot of, you know, highly intelligent people out in India in general, but there's a lot of women who go out and they don't get much support from maternity to wise or paternity to wise in, in India at the moment anyway. Right. But you can, uh, but they're all there wanting to get back into work. And so, you know, we recently hired a number of women who were looking to get back in the workforce, which is great because they're there. They tend to be a little bit of overlooked uh, minority out there. And even in this country, everywhere in general, really. So again, you're looking at what we were looking there was motivations. Why do they want to work? And again, it's for something stable. They want to make sure that they're getting their, um, you know, stable project work it's going to be a nine to five etc etc so then you take this over to somewhere like portugal where i had a, an outsourced team similar things right so what do people want to work the market is really really hot in portugal what what is going to attract them it's not going to be money because there's loads of people paying money and in portugal you have this kind of really weird situation like a lot of european countries where the more you get paid the less you take home in some circumstances because of the way the tax system works so really for them it's going to be other benefits right it could be benefits like company cars or it could be paid um not paid holidays but you know paying for certain things so you may be going out for meals or whatever it is uh, and uh, having a good team spirit being able to have that flexibility working from home so again it, it, you can't just assume that everyone is motivated by the same things that you're motivated by and um and and i think that's yeah that that's one of the key things i think everyone should should take away really yeah so i guess the key really what you're saying there is to actually research you know and understand yeah. what culture it is you're setting there you know not not like say not assume um you know that just because obviously what drives uh, people in the uk is going to be the same in other countries clearly it's going to be very different and uh, yeah i guess that's uh that's good management in many ways isn't it just understanding the psychology of somebody and actually what uh, what what drives them so yeah it makes total sense um are there any kind of success stories that you can share where you feel that the specific choice around the location of where you decided to build the team was actually a really pivotal part of why the project was a success or a failure, I guess a success or a failure uh, based on, um, you know, how, how you see the outcome of the initiative. But um, yeah, are there any specific re any areas where you think that the location was quite instrumental? So I think, again, it comes a little bit down to the people, right? So the, I think one of the best things that we did was in Aztec when we, we set up our operations, so our IT operations people, uh, overlooking the platform that we built in the US, had our main dev team in uh, in Portugal, and some guys were in Latvia and India as well. And then we had all, all our business analysts and and, and testing team in in Ireland. So that was a nice little bridge, right? So time wise, 
Ireland, Portugal makes sense. Even uh, Latvia is only an hour out. And then because of the operational piece, a lot of our customers were in North and South America. So that made much more sense rather than us having to, to deal with that operational piece in, on this side of the world. That was good. But also it was, it was interesting in that each country, there was a certain demographic that I could, I could aim for because I knew they'd stay loyal to the business and they weren't really hunting around for money. So in Portugal, what it was, was that uh, the guys that we ended up hiring were all family, family people, right? Uh, and so they wanted something stable. We could give them something stable. We could pay them well. And we knew that they weren't going to run around and chase the next new shiny project because there's so much happening in that, in that place, right? They weren't necessarily interested in going off. Oh, I want to do blockchain now. Oh, I want to do some react development. Oh, I want to do that. They like what we're doing. We were expanding business. We were growing. We had that. And in the U S I managed to find the demographic of the people who are a little bit older. So I guess around more around my age in the forties. And again, it wasn't necessary that they, you know, they were ambitious people, but they needed to have a nine to five in the sense that, you know, they, their kids to pick up and drop off and, bunch of different things that they had going on in their lives and and so they were willing to take a little bit less let's say than the young blood that was coming up and uh, and really moving fast but again they wanted stability right so for them it was we weren't going to call them on weekends we weren't going to you know ask them to work every every day of the week and um and so for them it was it was that again that, that was the cultural piece for for them that was important and, and you hit the right note with everyone because you had enough youngsters and older people in the team it was nicely balanced across all of the different countries so it was a it's a good mixture of age and, and experience with one i think where we stretched a little bit too far was in norway where we set up a 24 7 development so i had developers in new zealand india um norway and the u.s so that was a that it kind of worked, but I never I never slept. That was a problem. We always, so you, there was always a question from someone coming in at some point in time, and so I realised that that was a little bit of a step too far. So we got rid of the US bit and we just stayed with with New Zealand because it, it was a nice idea to be able to shift a piece of work and have it continuously worked on. But ultimately, then you as a boss, you never get to sleep, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So yeah. Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? Like just genuinely logistically that time difference i think for lots of people i speak to and that's that is just the biggest blocker in terms of where they choose because i know for a fact if you're in the uk working in the you know, west coast of the states for instance like culturally in many ways you've probably got a lot in common it would make a lot of sense to try and forge that partnership but just from a business logistics point of view that that time um, zone is, is pretty brutal the, the difference isn't it so um so what i'd add on that actually is that and this is probably another thing that's quite key is that you've got to know what you're outsourcing or nearshoring, right? So the the reason that the U S Portugal Ireland worked, it was because every single place, every division, if you want to call it for one of a better term was, was, um, had its own autonomy, right? So each team could do its own thing and make its own decisions. So the problem with Norway, when was, we were doing the 24 hours, seven life cycle was that people were dependent on each other. So it wasn't, you might've been working on, slightly different areas of the of the platform but they were all interconnected anyway so if you did something in one place you wouldn't want to ask a question to someone else in somewhere else whereas in in aztec when we were doing uh, when we had the teams in the us portugal and, and ireland was that each of those teams could handle everything by themselves but they would need to coordinate only once or twice a day right we wouldn't necessarily need to co coordinate every day so there would be the processes worked better Right? because there was a process in place for us to talk to each other when we needed to talk to each other. And if there was a decision to be made, they had a certain level of autonomy. Mm. Uh, and that was very important. I think that's one of the things people mix up a little bit is they don't, they, they try and 
do too much with the teams and trying to, you know, if you, yes, it's nice to have three people in Portugal and two people in London sitting, doing a sprint together, but that's a great time zone. But if you want to do the same thing with India, it's not going to work, right? You need that team in India to be independent of anyone in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that kind of probably leads me into my next question around how do you feel it works best in terms of the structure of a team internationally? If, you know, you're, you're set on the idea of doing some kind of international presence, what would you say is best to have the split between, you know, is it always better to have a certain number of uh, or a certain proportion you feel in HQ or is that not necessarily that important and actually you can have more based externally? Yeah, what's your thoughts on where you sort of location and structure of a team? Well, the great thing is there's, there's no such thing as HQ anymore, is there really? Depending on, well, depending on what, uh, what your philosophy is. I, d- I think, it's more around the process piece, right? So your team needs to be able to make a decision on something if it's if you are not available to to answer straight away. And that's pretty much with any kind of IT team, right? Any technical team you're working in, if you're working in agile methodology, they should just know what they need to do and get on with it. And you should be speaking to them every couple of weeks once there's a sprint zero. And in between all that, if they've got questions to ask, it shouldn't be time critical, right? It shouldn't be something that needs to be answered straight away. Where you get where things get a little bit hairy is operations. So that was a little bit more interesting because how do we deal with when we had customers at Aztec that let's say for that were in Singapore, uh, Chile, and the US and Spain, and they all got problems at the same time. We didn't have teams in lots of different locations because that was that was a sorry I didn't have tech teams in all lots of different locations because that would have just got ridiculously expensive, right? And people would have just been being one or two men. Uh, or women teams out out there not doing very much uh, and so you had to then have that process in place that there was someone at least in in country that could deal with first line support that we would give us buy us some time for the for the back end support so i still think um th- the way it works is having the autonomy having the structure having communications right because it, the key is you can't let people alone for too long and i know that i said you don't have to speak every day but you do need to have some sort of um linkage with within the team so that people are at least chatting and and feeling that they're part of a wider organization because what you can get and this can happen in in a single country right i've seen it happen where you've got lots of locations in the same country full of developers you can find that one office ends up just going off in a different way than the others and so unless there's some constant communication there's you need to have some sort of camaraderie you need to have some people you know people just talking to each other right sharing knowledge doing some fun stuff together, which is what you would do in a remote team now, which I, you know, I know a lot of people are, are doing during COVID. It, it's those same principles of managing a remote team uh, that you have with developers. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. I mean, you mentioned COVID there and, and clearly COVID's been an absolute game changer, you know, for a lot of companies, whether they, they like it or not, whether it was on the roadmap or not, you know, they've been forced into the situation where they've kind of had to make remote work. Um, and I think, yeah, the difference is quite interesting, actually, I speak to a lot of uh, leaders now, I think the difference of where we are now, you know, the beginning of the first lockdown, I think there was definitely this kind of blase attitude a little bit to, well, let's just wait for it all to blow over and then we'll basically just go back to the way we were. Um, but obviously, because the situation's gone on for such a prolonged period of time now, I think a lot of companies have had no choice but to fundamentally re-engineer their processes and their, their working practices to actually allow people to work remotely moving forward so i guess i do see that as one personally one quite big positive thing off the back of a not very nice 12 months it's been a, a sort of fundamental shift forward in terms of uh, 
you know, possible uh, remote working. Um, what do you think that now spells out for the future of kind of international uh, strategy? And you know, now what would be the virtues of taking a employee remotely in the UK versus actually spinning up a new team in in a new country? Uh, how do you think COVID's kind of changed that? That so there's this thing I saw on LinkedIn the other day, which I thought it was just fantastic, but I I don't know who sent it. And I wish I'd shared it, but uh, it shows a graph of uh, salaries for the same job, same year in different countries, right? So let's say, for example, you're a .NET developer for six years, and in the UK, you might be getting paid 80, 90 grand, but in um, South Africa, you might be getting paid 20 grand, right? And, and what was interesting was that the guy was basically saying that now, we just because you're paid a lot in a certain country doesn't mean your value is that because someone in another country might be paying less, you know, okay. They, they may be a, they may have a salary, which is high for their country but, and it doesn't compare to yours, but it doesn't mean that you are worth a million if you're being paid a million, right? There's someone else out there who can do your job. And what, what I, you know, I think he said this, but it's something that, you know, um, piqued my interest was because talent is everywhere around the world. And so if you're, if you're clever about it and you're organized and you've got the right processes in place, you can take advantage of that talent no matter where it is. So I was recently giving a, um, I was part of a panel discussion in South Africa uh, to a uh, organization, organization called Geek Culture. And they've got thousands of students in South Africa, but also tens of thousands across Africa uh, that they link together and, and try to get them to internships and working with companies in any shape or form so that once they get into the once they graduate and get into the workplace they've got a bit of experience which obviously makes them much more interesting and, and one of the key things that a couple of the guys said there and in, in, in i echoed was that now the competition is global right if you're a developer in any country you should be thinking on a global level that you're competing not not just with dude down the road or dude down the next city you're competing with someone halfway across the world mm-hmm. because you know for someone in let's say Cape down to change his working hours it's not a lot it's only a couple of hours right if that needs to be aligned mm. and even with India, you get it a lot it's been happening for many years people just shift their working hours to align if they needed to so you know you i think that's if you're a, a business now looking to get the best for the money that you can afford so you're you know essentially getting the cost of, well, i won't say cost effective but the, the most for bang for your buck you should be looking to go anywhere and if you can manage people remotely in the UK, you can manage people anywhere in the world, right? Yeah. It's just, you can be organized with it. So I think this is a, this is a great thing. And I think it'll be good for, I'm not going to say it's going to reduce wages in this country. I can't see that happening because it, and look at the US, they're nuts. If you look at some of the, uh, the salaries out there, but I think it will improve um, standards elsewhere. And I'm not saying that we should all be improving standards elsewhere, but it does mean that there'll be more money put in, to educating people in technology and STEM or whatever it is. Mm. And that I think is really good. That's really exciting because that means it's more, more money means more interest means you'll get more, you'll, the brightest will go there. If you look at MBAs, MBAs, um, I think it's been for the last five, 10 years, maybe it's at least the five years where MBA students, they're more likely to become founders and entrepreneurs than they are to go into investment banking, mm. which is what it was previously, right? Which is great because the talent's going into the right place where you can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like it's uh, it's opened up the, uh, the the restricting factors that were there before, hasn't it? And kind of really leveled the playing field globally, I guess, which is really exciting. Yeah, you because know, I mean, even for 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 us thinking about kind of international expansion now, you know, it's 
it suddenly makes it a lot more feasible because you haven't necessarily got those initial huge setup costs that you normally would traditionally have had with setting up a recruitment business internationally going over you know generally speaking in recruitment and understandably you know actually to kind of meet people face to face it's a it's a big key part of the role but uh, you know now we do thankfully have technology like this whilst it's never going to fully replicate you know the quality of interaction you get face to face it is incredibly helpful um you know to actually beg the question do you really need to kind of land before you expand uh you know do you actually need to go fork out all this money to go and get an office set up in new york before you actually go and start working in the new york market and quite frankly i think the answer is no you don't have to um, no you don't and, and i think if you look at especially what you do if it was me i'd be saying well hang on there, yeah there's talent pool in the uk need to make that nurture that of course and in europe but then why not go to someone like the guys in south africa geek culture who've got you know a few thousand people there that they can you can talk to and and then it makes your business more interesting, right? In the sense that you can say to these guys, well, yes, we've got X, Y, and Z data scientists, but actually we've also got these guys who are studying at University of Cape Town and, and are interested in an in initial uh, job placement, but then, and they're not going to be, they'll be a little bit cheaper. Yeah. But you may need to, to nurture them. And I think that's, that's really, I think is quite interesting and exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's giving, it's giving a better service, isn't it? It's just giving more options. And I think mm. that's the, uh, that's the, the thing that often um, yeah, people, people look for. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I guess on that note, I mean, what do you, how do you feel the, the last 12 months has impacted things specifically for the UK? Obviously, you know, where, we, where we live right now, what, what do you think the roadmap is looking like for the technology landscape in the UK um, off the back of the last 12 months? It's been a weird one, isn't it? Because we've been starting, stopping for, starting and stopping for, for a while now. And I think at the beginning of the year, it seemed like there was going to be a big push and it kind of stopped, didn't it? Around, so January, everything, everyone was really hectic. It was a bit mad. And then it kind of stopped mid-Feb. And then March was a little bit dry because I think everyone was thinking we're going back into the next, not well, we were in the, back, in the next lockdown. And April now is picking up again where people are having conversations. Um, from There was a bit of doom and gloom, wasn't there, really, at the start of the pandemic when people were being laid off. And... Um, and there was a lot of developers out there, but I, I don't think it took them too long to find jobs because I think the people with money just sucked them up. So I do know that people who are trying to hire now in the UK are finding it very difficult because there's just not, there's not that many people around who are available. And those who are, are able to, um, are able to demand a price. I think the other problem that you got is we've got the three month, um, uh, garden, not garden leave, but notice period here in the UK, right? Which causes a huge amount of problem because most people need technology now. Uh, I've, I've never, I've only very, come, very rarely come across people that have asked me, oh, we want to do this project in six months' time. <laughs> right? They're like, I need it in three weeks. That's okay. So, but I think it's, it's pretty bullish. I think, um, I think, I do think we'll bounce back into technology. I don't think we really ever went away with technology, right? But I think there will be more demand. Um, whether we'll be able to satisfy that demand or not, I don't know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with you. I think, uh, you know, as I think I was just saying re- recently, you know, it's always recruitment sources, of supply and demand paradigm. And it's always really interesting to see how that sort of skews one way or the other. Um, but yeah, I do think the next 12 months are going to be really telling in terms of kind of how, uh, how it all pans out um, on that, that supply demand paradigm. Um, and certainly we've seen a huge shift just in the last three months alone, mm-hmm. you know, from, uh, now, thankfully, we've got this roadmap back to normality. Um, you know, a lot of companies starting to take the brakes off and, and really kickstarting some very uh, kind of ambitious uh, 
uh, hiring plans, which I guess is, is nice for us, but um, yeah, it presents new new challenges, doesn't it? So uh, yeah, I think your point though about looking internationally and offering services for uh, you know um, international um, consultancies and agencies is a very sensible approach as well. So that's something we'll definitely look to do. Um, so I guess yeah, just just sort of lastly bringing it back onto the actual t- topic of tech um, and you know from your perspective as a, as a CTO going in and and uh mapping out defining technical strategy and looking what kind of technology to implement i know it's always going to be the right tool for the right job i guess but in terms of where you are most excited now about the future of tech and you know what what kind of uh tech uh, initiatives you're really uh, passionate about and uh keen to get your teeth into what what do you uh yeah what's what's, what's floating your boat at the moment what's getting you fired up it's interesting that because uh i was going through the the gartner hype curve i don't know if you know about that no there's a thing called the Gartner hype curve. So every year they put together um, a, a graph that essentially talks about lists all the technology and, and trends that are out there in, in the technology world that are being talked about a lot, a lot. So the ones that have a great hype, what tends to happen is that there's this huge, huge spike in hype uh, and lots of people are very, very interested in it and everyone's talking about it. And then that, then the curve just kind of, it's like a very flattened bell curve. So it, uh, it's peaked bell curve. Sorry, it just drops dramatically because what people figure out is that, well, this this is this is all hype. It's not really. There's nothing I can do with it. It's either expensive or when you try and apply it, it doesn't do exactly the things that you need. And then what happens is it tapers off and comes back again because after about twelve months' time, people have realised, well, actually, we use this technology for that, and and then it starts building up again, but at a much more sustainable way. So, if you look at what's on, so a good example is gamification. So gamification, I don't know if you remember, but you know, five, six years ago, everything was going to be gamified, right? Our lives were going to be gamified, everything we do. Microsoft bought a company called Yammer for ridiculous amounts of money. And then Yammer disappeared. Nothing got gamified. And we were like, all right, what happens now? Whereas now what you're seeing is that people are using gamification within, obviously, not just games, but obviously in their learning tools. So if you want to teach kids about X, Y, and Z things, you're creating apps to gamify that experience. You're, you're gamifying um, uh training so we know some companies right now that are doing uh, training through gamification there's a whole bunch of, and even investment so the whole robin hood is gamified uh, investment right so what's on the hype curve at the moment is ai and machine learning so everything is ai and machine learning and we're seeing a lot of that coming through uh, and what i mean what i'm seeing is there's a lot of very very interesting applications of of what people want to do with machine learning there's a whole argument as to whether what people are trying to do is ai or not and that's a different debate that can take forever. Uh, but uh, we are seeing a lot more interesting projects in that where it is stuff that will, will actually make it. You're not just looking to try and trigger what someone should buy next, right? Uh, you're, you're looking at real-world applications. So there's one company that uh, we've been talking to who are using natural language processing to improve the written test scores of people who of kids whose first language is in English, right? Uh, and so because exams are about 80% written. So there's stuff like that which is out there, especially in the ed tech sector, which is cool. But I think really what the, the fact that we're getting more of these companies coming to us points to a bigger trend and a bigger thing that I think is really exciting is a, is a democratization of tech. So what you're finding is it's, e- it's easier and easier nowadays to, to set up technology at a very basic level. So if you want to run machine learning, learning algorithms, you can go to Google, uh, Azure AWS and you can run things out of the box 
you don't need a data science team initially of course mm. you do need people to have a strategy and plan etc in place but you can get this done now it won't differentiate you and you can get expensive but it's it means you can test out things the whole low code no code uh, movement which again has a lot of, had a lot of hype is coming into itself now i think where people are able to start building at least prototypes um, themselves just to see how it, how it is and I don't think it's, it takes away necessarily from things that we do. I think it's actually a good thing because people then realize how difficult it is to design and build and, and maintain the, these apps and, and there are limitations. But I think the fact that now people can touch and feel technology much more easily than they could before, that will open up a whole set of new trends or open new paths really and allow people to, to understand how can tech be used within their lives or, or to change things. So I think that's, that I think is interesting. I think there's a whole bunch of different things coming together that will help helpfully open up technology to, to a wide audience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I guess that's what, uh, you know, we're, we're all uh, aware of the AI bubble, aren't we? And, and how it's sort of interfacing with our lives. But I guess in, in reality, you know, that, that is what technology is there for. It's to solve problems for the masses on, on scale, isn't it? And, uh, that'd be really interesting to see how that, uh, that does sort of extrapolate out into, our, our everyday lives moving forward but uh yeah fantastic well um lovely to speak to you about. i've really really enjoyed the chat and uh, i think you shared a huge amount of value today and and uh, really interesting to hear your kind of different uh, opinions and approaches on uh, international versus uh, domestic tech um but uh yeah i guess not, nothing remains for me to uh, thank you and um yeah wish you all the very best for the future well thanks for having me on it's been great to be on this side of the mic as they say <laughs> good man all right see you soon cheers Okay, well.